Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Joining us in our series through Genesis, I want to tell you how excited I am that you're here today or that you're listening with us. Uh, we've been for really since July going through the book of Genesis bit by bit. And uh, I encourage you, especially as we navigate today, uh, to read uh, each week the sections we're going to be in in Genesis uh, because there's going to be large chunks that we cover that. I just don't do justice because we would be here for four hours, okay? And uh, I'm not going to do that to you, but I'm going to challenge you to be in the Word and to read your Bible uh, throughout the week. And there is a lot of history that has taken place up to chapter 29 in Genesis. So uh, if you have never read the book of Genesis, that's your homework this week is to read from chapter 1 through chapter 28, and we're going to actually seek to cover chapters 29 through 31 this morning as we look at the continued life of Jacob. Now, when we last left Jacob, he was in the midst of the wilderness, and he had just had a dream that reminded him that God is over it all. And it was this dream uh, where Jacob sees a ladder and God is at the top of the ladder and there's angels going back and forth between heaven and earth. And at the end of this dream, where God declares his promise to Jacob, Jacob goes, the Lord is here and I didn't know it. And his posture changes. And then he vows to the Lord uh, that if the Lord will do X, Y, and Z, then he will make the Lord his God, which we talked about was a short failing there at the end of chapter 28. Uh, and now where we pick up in chapter 29 is as he continues on his journey and makes it to his destination. Now, some of you who may be joining us may be going, why is he on this journey to begin with? Well, to make a long story short, Jacob is a trickster and decided to deceive his brother, his family of his background. His family background is a mess. And out of his safety, because his brother Esau wanted to kill him, his mother says, go to my brother Laban's, where you will be safe, and when it's safe for you to return, then you can come back. And that's where we sit. So Jacob is going to a land he has not been to, with where there is people he has not yet met, and this is where we pick up this narrative. So look at verse 1 of Genesis 29 with me. It says, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. Everyone say large. You know, that, you, that'll be significant here in a minute. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the mouth of the well and the wa- and water the sheep. 
and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Okay, so this is describing a location that this next event is happening. And uh, it's significant here that you notice there's three different flocks of sheep that are present at the well. And normally what would happen is the shepherds would gather all of the flocks at the well. And then when all the flocks had arrived, the shepherds together would move the stone off and they would water their sheep. And then they would return them back to pasture. This is how this worked. And so that's what he comes upon these, uh, these flocks and their shepherds. And so Jacob decides to engage with these shepherds that are waiting around the well. Look at verse 4. It says, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. Now we have to think in that moment, his ears kind of perked up because that's where he's going. To Haran, where Laban, his uncle, is. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. Verse 6, he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. So, in the midst of this, Rachel enters the picture. And what we see described here in chapter 29 is that uh, Jacob is enamored with Rachel. And we know this because verse 10 reveals to us that Jacob goes he-man and rolls the stone off the well himself. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. We know the stone was large. Normally the shepherds would take the stone off when all the flocks were there. Well, Jacob sees Rachel coming. It says there in verse 10, As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So you have to wonder, just speculate, speculating what the other shepherds were thinking at this point. And the interesting thing about this is what we know about Jacob from the past is that it was his brother Esau that was the outdoor kind of, Ugh. but in this moment, something triggers Jacob and I'm going to move this stone. I have to believe that some of you brothers were the same way when you first laid eyes on your now wife. That oh, your chest comes out a little bit and you do something that might hurt yourself. Right? <laughs> so we see this play out in Jacob. And he waters her sheep. And then in verse 11, uh, he kisses her. And it doesn't give us any more information about this. But I will tell you that this is the only place in Scripture where you see someone do this to someone that was not their spouse. So whether it was in a moment of poor judgment or if it was something he was taught, like I'm going to kiss you on the cheek, we don't know. But it had to be somewhat startling for Rachel, to say the least. Upon explaining himself to her, Rachel then goes to her father, Laban, and shares all this with him. Because Jacob shares that he's a kinsman, uh, that would be a relative of the family, which culturally would mean this is what families wanted. They wanted a bloodline that did not go into the nations of the land as God had called them to. And so in verse 13, it says, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him. And kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So just a note on that. 
uh, what we see here is when Jacob arrives, he is welcomed. He's welcomed by Laban. And so in the, the beginning portion of this narrative, we may be prone to have some hope. Like, oh, all right, things seem to be going well. Um, this is kind of where the things going well part ends. And you're about to see why. So after a month, Laban approaches Jacob and kind of slyly asks him what he is to be paid to work for him. And what the verse following describes is two sisters, daughters of Laban, Leah, whose eyes are weak, as scripture describes, and Rachel, who is described as beautiful in appearance. Now, this really reveals more specifically the narrative through the eyes of Jacob, as we see played out in verse 18, where it says, uh, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, the fact that Jacob would jump to serving for seven years may seem like nothing to us. And yet, biblically speaking, if he had said three to five years, it would have been normal. And so his automatic jumping to, I will serve you for seven years, just expounds all the more at how much Jacob was drawn to Rachel. He goes the extra mile to earn her hand. And Laban said, verse 19, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob, this is key, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days. And that's when all the ladies go, oh, Right? Seven years, but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, this is a complete side tangent in this, but a note to make. Uh, Brothers, may you serve your wives in a way that seven years would feel like days. Because you love her so much. That's an example we should follow. Um, that's, That's something we should aspire for. Now, what happens next can only be described as irony that Jacob, the trickster himself, was tricked by Laban. The wedding day comes. Jacob has served his seven years. The wedding day comes. The feast is brought about. But that night, Laban takes his oldest daughter, Leah, into Jacob, not Rachel. And it would be wise for us to ask, how could this happen? What in the world? Are you kidding me? And as I've had a couple people who've been reading ahead and they've asked me, how did, how did Jacob not know? Seriously. Well, it do- doesn't tell us specifically, uh, but judging by Laban's character, as you're going to see, it's likely that he took advantage of the situation. Whether it be by the veil on the bride or the time of day or the potential that there was a little too much wine consumed at the feast. We don't know. But regardless, in the midst of this, what we do know is that Laban deceives Jacob. He tricks him. The marriage is consummated and Jacob wakes up in the morning. 
Verse 25, look at that with me. It says, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And I don't really, I can't even really imagine what that morning looked like. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country. Now you say this, Laban, to give the younger before the firstborn, complete the week of this one. And what he means by that is the wedding celebration would last a week. So when he says complete the week of this one, he says, finish this wedding and we will give you the other also in return for you serving me another seven years. Ah, now we see what Laban is doing. Jacob loves Rachel so much. He served me for seven years. How can I extort this situation for my selfish gain? You know, I'm going to trick him. And he can serve me for another seven years. And Jacob, verse 28, Jacob did so. And completed her week, being Leah's. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years years everyone say what a mess oh my goodness what a mess already jacob has gotten to laban he's been there a month worked seven years for rachel now he's been deceived now we've got this mess where the two sisters are married to the same guy what a mess right I wish I could say it gets better. Chapter 30. And uh, in my outline, I titled this next section, Birth Wars. Because that's what it is. So, chapter 30, verses 1 through 24, details a mess of relationships completely rooted in fleshly desire. Rachel is barren. And her sole focus, get this, and perceived value is placed in having children. How do we know this? Look at chapter 30, verse 1. It says, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Her entire perceived worth was rooted in her ability to give birth. Now, what happens in verse 2 is maybe the only place in this narrative where we see Jacob respond in a way that he should have responded. Which is, he, he got angry at the statement and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? In other words, How am I able, when she comes to him and says, you give me children or I'm going to die, and he goes, I can't do that. I am unable to cause this to be. And in that, we could take another side note and recognize that there are some things in life we have control over, but there is a lot of things we do not. Which is exactly why Proverbs 3 says we should trust in the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding but in all our ways acknowledge Him and allow Him to make our paths straight. Not ourselves. 
And yet, even though Jacob says this, what we see happen after this reveals a passivity in Jacob where he allows further unrest to come across his family. He allows just a cascading effect of what happens. And to summarize that for you, Rachel, right after this, commits the same action that Sarah did to Abraham. When Sarah could not have children, she gave her servant to her husband and said, oh, we're just going to do it our own way. And verse 3, look at that. Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even though I may have children through her. Now there's three women involved. Then in verses 9 through 12, Leah does the same thing. Look at this. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Now we've got four. Okay, do you see the compounding effect of this? Everyone say, what a mess. What a mess. Then in this, all right, of all of this, verses 14 through 16 are probably one of the, in my opinion, most laughable sections of this narrative. And I'll explain why. Look at verse 14 through 16. In the days of wheat harvest... Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, the question you should be asking is, what are mandrakes? Right? Someone asked that question. What are mandrakes? Great question. I had no idea until this week. And I started doing some research. And in past history, mandrakes were known as love apples. In other words, it was... They were convinced that this was some sort of aphrodisiac. Okay? And so we read that and we go, well, it makes sense why Rachel's convinced. Well, nothing else seems to work. And Leah's, her, her son's found the mandrakes. And, uh, well, I'm the one who needs the mandrakes, not you. And verse 15 says, but she said to her, this is Leah, it is a small matter that you have taken away my husband. Would you also take away my son's mandrakes also? Really? And Rachel said, okay, well, Jacob can lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So then Jacob comes in from the field and Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me tonight for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And Jacob's like, okay. Everyone say, what a mess. What a mess. Here, here's, as I sat and I thought about this, I, I, that was this phrase that just kept going over and over and over in my head. And then when I backed off of that, here's what, here's what came to my mind. God uses our mess for his glory. Right? Because what you don't realize in reading Genesis, if you haven't read the rest of Scripture, is that it is indeed through Leah's children that Jesus comes to be. And so here we see this huge mess going on. And one would be wise to ask, how in the world is there anything redeeming in the midst of this? And at the end of the day, for us to recognize... That there is nothing we can do to derail the purposes of God. 
Praise God for that. Now, here's the thing. I would not have wanted to live amongst this mess. Can you imagine? Imagine the conflict. Imagine the stress and the tension. Imagine the conversations and the hostility that would rise up. And then, I don't know if we're okay or not. And so, living in a way that is contrary to what God has called His people to, and in the midst of this mess, results in earthly consequences. But it does not derail the plans of God. And I want you to see a distinction between that. Because too often, we convince ourselves, well, God redeeming my mess means that He's going to take my mess and He's going to make it this nice, tidy thing. No! Many, many, many times you're going to make a mess and you're going to sit in your mess. Because you made bad choices. And that's not God's fault. That's your fault. But you cannot, no matter how messy life gets, derail the promises and the purposes of God. God uses our mess for His glory. Eleven sons in all at this point. And Jacob is fed up. He's done. It's been 20 years. He's worked and worked and worked for Laban. And now he wants to chart his own path and return back to his homeland. Look at verse 25 of chapter 30. It says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned here he is crafty Laban by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Now, they come to an agreement here. And Laban once again seeks to cheat Jacob out by taking the portion of sheep to a place three journeys away. And so what happens is they make a deal and say, well, as the sheep give birth, we will take certain types of sheep based on their color. And when we get all said and done, that's how we'll part ways and determine who's doing what. And so Laban connives himself and has his sons take all the sheep that in his mind are going to bring about benefit to Jacob and has them take them three days journey away. And yet the Lord fulfills his promise to Jacob to bless him. And so as time passes, Jacob, by the hand of God, and that's all that can be described of, Jacob ends up with great herds of sheep. And they're stronger than Laban's. Why? Because Jacob was called by the Lord. Well, Laban's family is not a fan of this. And we see that in chapter 31, verses 2 and 3. Where it says, And Jacob saw... Well, I'll back up to verse 1. Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. Now, we have to, we have to expect that Laban was feeding these conversations about his son-in-law and their families. He was just, even though he knew, he'd taken the sheep away. Oh no, it's Jacob's fault. Jacob's the one who's destroyed it. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. It's his fault. 
And Jacob saw that Laban didn't regard him with favor as before. And then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now, in wisdom, this is another redeeming piece of this story. If you glance over to verses 14 through 16, Jacob actually goes and asks, in this whole section before that, Jacob goes to Rachel and Leah, and he says to them, I know this is your father, but I'm asking you what we should do. Help me navigate this. And Rachel and Leah, the only time in this whole piece that they're unified in anything, it says, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. I want you to pause for a minute and think about how sad it is that that's what Laban's daughters have to say about him. This conniving trickster of a, fa- of a father and even his own daughters say, he sees us as foreigners. We mean nothing to him. Hang on to that for a moment. So Jacob takes his family and leaves. Three days later, Laban starts chasing them. And when they finally meet up, we see this whole conflict explode. And this takes place, look at verses 26 through 28 of chapter 31. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? Again, it's Jacob's fault. That you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly? And trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine. and I'm just picturing Laban whining at this point. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. So much easier to point the finger, isn't it? Than to take responsibility. We see this further exasperated. Jacob responds, if you jump over to verse 41, and says, These 20 years I have been in your house. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. You have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And then Laban's response reveals everything we need to know about Laban's character. Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Now, at the end of this extremely messy part of Genesis, Laban and Jacob make a truce and they go their separate ways. And that's how this portion of the narrative ends. Everyone say, what a mess. And when we read all of this, It can often leave us asking the question, what in the world 
do we take away from this? What can we learn? And you'd be surprised to know there's multiple things I believe we can learn in this. Number one, God has designed marriage. Do it his way. It's interesting to me that a number of people in the world around are convinced that because we see in the Old Testament instances of multiple wives, that that's used as ammunition to say, well, see, what we have made to be initial marriage is not really right because you see these people in the Bible have multiple wives. And based on what you're saying, one man, one woman, that shouldn't be a problem. And I go, uh, actually, it's a big mess. It absolutely reveals this was not God's design. And we go back to the beginning of time when the Lord himself instituted what marriage is and why he instituted it. And we have to fall back to this place of going, okay, setting aside every bit of what I feel, what has God said to be true? Because that's what matters. And you can have all the opinions you want in the world, but it still has to come back to this place of answering the question, what has God himself established? Now, you can choose to do it opposed to the way that he's established it, and I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a mess. Now, some of you, upon hearing that, are going to say, I sought to do it God's way, and it turned out a mess. That exists right here in this room. People who go, I I tried to do it. So you're saying it's going to be a mess if I don't do it God's way. Well, I did. I sought to do it God's way and it was a mess. And I would say to that, a perceived failure is not the result of a broken system as much as it is a revelation of broken people. If we've sought to do it the Lord's way and it ends up a mess, that is an indicator that sin is involved. And brokenness is involved. And what I would say to someone in that is I would go, I'm so sorry, that's what you've experienced. And that's exactly what Jesus came to redeem us from. Because there is brokenness. And there is hurt and pain. And doing it the way God has established to do it does not guarantee that there won't be messiness involved. But what it does guarantee is that when I stand before God someday and He goes... What did you do in your body, whether good or evil, that I can stand before him in confidence and say, I trusted you through the mess and I sought to do this the way you told me to. We're surrounded by brokenness. Continue to strive to do this God's way. The second thing we can glean from this, husbands, lead your families back to the Lord. Jacob passively sits by and does nothing perceived in scripture while his wives bicker and fight and only once do we see Jacob even refer back to the Lord in chapter 30 when he says am I in the place of God husbands you would be wise fathers you would be wise to ask the question based in how we spend our time together as a family Our resources, whether it be possessions or finances, what am I leading my family towards? And unfortunately for many people, it's not the Lord. 
For many people, it's leading them to earthly success. It's leading them to activity. It's leading them to earthly succeeding and completely absent of vertical relationship with the Lord. Husbands, fathers, lead your families back to the Lord. The third thing, parents, don't be like Laban. Oh my goodness. You do not own your children. Stop acting like you do. They are not your possessions. They are the Lord's. And He has loaned them to you to shepherd them back to Him. You do not own them. Steward them back to the one who does. Parents of adult married children, the most harmful thing you can do for your kids is hinder their unity. I want to say that again. Parents of adult married children, the most harmful thing you can do for your kids is hinder their unity. What does that look like? It means when you butt yourself into conflict and give your opinion. It means when you allow your child to come back to you instead of going to their spouse. It means when you fight more for your child than you do for their marriage. Because Scripture says that when a man and woman marry, they become one flesh. I had a professor in school who would say it like this, and I tell this to my couples I do premarital with. Uh, Every couple either has in-laws, or they have bylaws, do it our way, or they have outlaws. Which will you be? Don't be like Laban. He was so selfish. Everything in this was about him. Even after they had been married, even after all this, he goes, these are my daughters and my children. No. Don't be like Laban. Fourthly, children with difficult parents set healthy boundaries. Now, I want to preface something here. Teenagers, this is not talking about you. Okay? And what I mean by that is adult children who have difficult parental figures in your life. I know people in this room who have parental figures that are not saved. And the advice and counsel they give them is bad. And you need to set up healthy boundaries. Uh, And I will say this, healthy boundaries is not the same as disrespecting your parents. There's a big difference. There's a lot of people who go, well, the Bible says, honor your father and mother in the Lord, for this is right. There's a line. You need to have healthy boundaries that protect your marriage above your relationship with your parents. It has to be a priority. If you prioritize any other relationship apart from your relationship with God over the relationship with your spouse, you are headed for a mess. Don't do that. Set up healthy boundaries in order to maintain a foundation that is rooted in God's purposes. Fixed on Him. And the last thing for every one of us as we think about this, individuals, families, wherever you're at in life, lead your homes by faithfully following the Lord. 
as we look back at the past weeks of mes- past weeks messages, we, we've said things like his plans are best. His timing is perfect. His purposes are sure. Trust the Lord. We've said the Lord is faithful always. We've said the Lord stands above it all. His purposes are sure. But what am I leading my family towards? And maybe you're a single individual and you're going, I don't really see how this applies to me. Yes, it does. Lead your home by faithfully following the Lord. If that means you aren't married or you don't have kids, this still applies. How do I faithfully follow the Lord? I walk in obedience to what He has told me to do. It's really that simple. We make it so much more complicated than it should be, don't we? We really do. Faithfully follow the Lord. When people come to me and say, how should I lead my home? I say, read your Bible. And lead them back to this. And guess what? It doesn't mean you have to have all the words either. And my favorite phrase in that is, if God can make a blind man see and a lame man walk, he can use your inadequate words to bring glory to his name. Right? It's not about you being capable. It's about you being faithful and recognizing this. God has revealed his great love for you in that while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. The greatest thing we can lead our family back to is a center on who God is and what he has promised. And I have to wonder how this narrative would have looked different if Jacob had just continued to root back into those truths consistently. And so I'm going to call you as my church family to root back into what the Lord has already said and lead your homes by faithfully following the Lord. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And we're going to close today by singing, In Christ alone, my hope is found. And I want you to declare that, proclaim that, and we're going to commit this to the Lord, and then we're going to leave here and strive to lead our homes by faithfully following the Lord. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we come recognizing how much we fail to come back to a center that is focused on Christ. How much we often keep from coming back to a place where we're doing it our own way. And we find ourselves in a mess. Father, in the midst of our mess, may we proclaim the gospel That in Christ we are redeemed, in Christ we are made new, in Christ we are whole. That it is only through Jesus that we have any hope and any ability to lead our homes well. Father, may you teach us through the lessons revealed in these chapters of your word. The messes that are made. The questions of what could have been different. May that bring application in our own lives to ask, what can be different today? And how can we faithfully seek after the Lord? Transform us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name.